0: Okay, welcome back. Uh, This is um, the fourth week, Um, taking a little bit. uh, I'm trying to move through 2,000 years um, in uh, a few weeks, and it's taking a little longer uh, than I uh, had expected. Uh, So um, when I decided what few sessions I could have, uh, as you know, we've gone through Uh, three different um, turning points in the early church to establish some things. Uh, The obvious next move would be to go to the Reformation. Uh, But from my own studies of pre-Reformation, late medieval, uh, I think it's worthy to spend a Sunday looking at uh, what is perhaps least known uh, by many, uh, especially Protestants, who know something about the early church and then jump to the Reformation. So um, hang with me. Uh, Today we're going to look at uh, the Renaissance and what's happening and who are the influences on Luther and Calvin. We're looking at a picture of Bruges, or in Flemish, Brugge, means city of bridges, Brugge. Uh, This is a Becheinhof in Flemish, Beguinage in French, Um, And we're going to look at uh, these communities that existed prior to the Reformation. Right, so Renaissance. uh, Perhaps you know something about this. The Renaissance, as you know, is a a term, Renaissance, rebirth, naissance, birth, uh, coined uh, as late as the mid-19th century uh, to make sense of what was happening uh, in the time period 1300 to 1500. Uh, It's a rediscovery of ancient wisdom, at least what they thought was a rediscovery of ancient wisdom. From about the fall of Rome in the Latin-speaking West, uh, what was lost, of course, were texts uh, and even oral tradition of the ancient world It lasted a bit longer in the Byzantine Empire, which was the Greek-speaking Roman Empire centered in Constantinople, until about uh, 1100, Uh, and then the rise of Islam began to take away a lot of that territory, and we have the Crusades. We're not talking about that today, but the Renaissance then in about 1300, really about 1250, was a rediscovery of some of the things of the ancient world, Uh, The Renaissance kind of goes through three stages. At first, uh, there's a kind of naivete. It's a beautiful thing, the external beauty, the wisdom. The second stage of the Renaissance is sort of going back on one's heels. Uh, There's a crisis going on uh, in the 14th century. We're going to look at that just briefly. And then we move to a much more mature attitude of what are we rediscovering and what is new about what we're doing. So we're moving forward. Um, Humanism, uh, although taken today perhaps as a secular thing rather than a Christian view, humanism in this sense of the Renaissance is not a set of beliefs but a method. Uh, There was no way that scholars in the 1200 were able to recover ancient wisdom until they develop certain methods. So humanism, in this case, is a method. We'll talk properly about Christian humanism and why that's so important to Luther and Calvin. Uh, There's no English language, really, in 1200. Uh, The world of Latin, you would have seen this repeatedly, veritas non autoritas facet legum. And you could probably, if you don't know Latin, figure out a few things, right? Truth, uh, not authority, makes the law. So we're moving from an understanding in the Middle Ages that deductive knowledge would be someone was telling you what to believe, you either believed it or you were a heretic, to a much more inductive method of saying seeing is believing, right? I need to see the truth famous statement of Luther later on, right, is uh, unless you show me in scripture uh, what is uh, a truth, uh, you know, I I don't want to believe it, uh, or I I don't have to follow it. So that's the case. Uh, What starts to happen in the Renaissance is a knowledge of language, of philology, not philosophy. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. Philology is... Uh, the history and meaning of words, that words change over time, and that dawns upon them that translations need to be active and living. Um, We have to remind ourselves, too, that God works in every time and every place. Oftentimes we can divide it between uh, people who are receiving truth but can't put it together all the way, God's common grace is always there, and so one of my professors at Wheaton, Arthur Holmes, uh, wrote a book called uh, All Truth is God's Truth, and certainly that's the case we're going to look at today. Um, There's a problem of spirituality in the late Middle Ages, as most of you can probably uh, ascertain. Um, There were very few uh, what was called religious, right, so if you were religious uh, as a particular term, it meant that you had taken a vow as a nun or a priest or a monk, uh, and you h- might have had some access to uh, study of the Bible indirectly, perhaps, or something that would lead you to spirituality. The lady, however, were heavily mediated through the church. Um, and so Cyprian in the early church would say, uh, you can't have God as your father unless you have the Church as your mother, and uh, outside the church, but it became very, very narrow through the Middle Ages, uh, where uh, extreme mediation meant uh, lay people, uh, ordinary believers who hadn't taken vows, had little access. What starts to happen in this late period that I'm showing you today is called a modern devotion, a devotio moderna, and it's a movement in which the laity are being asked to uh, sidle up next to monks and nuns and the religious uh, and begin to live a life in community and uh, learning about the Bible. So we're going to unpack the Devotio Moderna for you today. Uh, There's a crisis in the 14th century, if you know. Uh, Many things are happening. Christendom. uh, Dom uh, comes from domus, meaning household. In the Middle Ages, the church Uh, was the holder of the household, right? And so we have things like kingdom or freedom, in this case, Christendom. It certainly breaks down in the Renaissance. Uh, We have the bubonic plague. One-third or one-half of the population of Europe are dead. Uh, Talk about uh, crisis, right, as we go forward. But Christian humanism uh, is a very important Uh, thing that's beginning uh, prior to Luther and Calvin who are going to put it all together for us and we say the Heidelberg uh, we say the Westminster Creed but all of these things have roots uh, at this period. Um, Just quickly uh, at one time there's three popes right so Christendom is going to break down uh, in the uh, rise of modern states. England and France are the first two modern states they have very different ideas. The papacy cannot hope to uh, give each one favored status. They're fighting in the Hundred Years' War, you know, Joan of Arc, and that happens. So what happens in Europe is that uh, one has a choice now of which pope uh, can uh, say, my, <coughs> my new state has uh, support from the church. So you can see Scotland... Uh, at least until 1703, is it, Robert, uh, or 6, uh, joins England. Uh, but it's no, it's no friend of England, so they can justify their existence now because the p- papacy in Avignon gives them the right uh, to be uh, their own, whereas England has to rely on Rome. So back and forth we go. Okay, so a couple of things are going to happen here. Um, artwork. Uh, I can't do that much uh, when I'm uh, teaching a whole course on, uh, on, on art, uh, history of art right now, uh, but just a few things. Christology, right, one's view of Christ. Nicene Creed, Christ Jesus is fully God and fully man. Throughout most of the Middle Ages, all the depictions and everything we read shows Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. They sort of stop there, right? So we can see from these icons, Jesus, we only know Jesus because of the halo, but of course the cross behind the halo uh, shows that it's Jesus. Uh, He's the divine judge. Uh, He is, uh, in Greek, panikrator, or in Hebrew, el Shaddai, the almighty. Uh, So we can see uh, Jesus. In this case, uh, we can see the uh, pierces in the risen Christ. Uh, But again, these feet are not supposed to really look like particular feet, right? They're too big. Uh, And uh, he is judging. In this case, he's lifting the souls of the righteous. In this case, he's pushing down the souls of the damned. That's the image of Jesus. We come to the late Middle Ages, and if you look at the artwork Jesus becomes the teacher in many Gothic uh, structures now arising. Um, he is uh, holding a Bible. He, it's, the Bible's open now. He's looking a little bit more human. Uh, certainly by the Renaissance, uh, Jesus becomes uh, the human again. He's the suffering servant, and it's very important. Uh, here we can see Jesus embracing here the circle of embracement. Uh, there's a new day dawning after the darkness uh, in the foreground of what's going to happen to Jesus. Uh, Albrecht Dürer, uh, very few more famous German uh, artists at the time, uh, has the suffering servant here. (laughs) You get the picture, right? A very different image. The man of sorrows. I think of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Despondent uh, here. Blood coming down. You never see that. Uh, here, I love this depiction of uh, Quentin Matzei, Ecke homo, right, the real man, right? And I love this guy here. In the Renaissance, um, they call this a pumpkin head. And whenever he, anyone's supposed to be a little bit silly, they give him a bald head like this, uh, the pumpkin head. And this guy holding this little rope to Jesus' hands really thinks he's got him now. I got you, right? <laughs> and it's so silly uh, that uh, he's uh, so unaware. And here's Pilate over here, right? I don't find anything wrong in this man, but you can see jo- uh, Jesus despondent here. I love this one um, in art, art history, a trompe d'oeil, right, in French, a trick of the eye. And, of course, the elongated body of Jesus coming with the piercings in his hands, lamentation over the dead Christ uh, shows Jesus humanity and one can begin to think about uh, Jesus as a man. Uh, One of my favorite artists who influences Rembrandt is Caravaggio uh, and I could spend probably the next hour just explaining how to read this painting but let me just do uh, very quickly because I know I'm trading other slides that are important uh, for this one but what 's happening is this is doubting Thomas, and the idea of being honest and doubt to one 's belief becomes uh, important that you you are doing it it 's not the church saying here 's what you have to believe, and you just either accept it or not. You have to enter into that yourself. I love this looking here. what we see here on the on the uh, the men here are furrowed brows, right A furrow means unless you plow deeply, you can 't seed and no fruit will come unless you've plowed the fields. You can see their furrowed bla- brows. Light, this is charo uh, light and darkness. Uh, their eyes are darkened. Uh, the light that's shown is showing that truth is coming. Where's the, where's the light coming? It's, a, it's on their forehead. They have, they have in their minds an idea of what it should be, but they can't quite see it yet. But the furrowed brows are very, very important. Um, Jesus, of course, has uh, shoulders are always important. Light on a shoulder is carrying a burden, but it's also a promise, right? In the Middle Ages when you were knighted, the sword went down on both shoulders, right? So shouldering things are very important. Um, What I love, too, is that uh, here is Thomas here and uh, this little split in his shoulder is significant, I think, because it means that underneath Thomas, the promise is already there, and the split in the cloth is showing you that he's beginning to understand, right? So it's a very dynamic picture if you look at this, uh, Jesus uh, and the disciples. We need to move on, I'm sorry. Um, Okay, so at least in the late Middle Ages, Within certain monasteries, there's a growth of education and knowledge, which is great. What we see here is uh, that uh, the Lectio Divina is going to become very, very important. The idea that there's a spiritual reading, right, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, right, what does that mean? You can unpack that. Uh, Suggested by Augustine, Basel, and St. Benedict, uh, we start this monk's ladder a reading, it's alexio, right? But then you don't stop there. There's a reflecting, right? A mediatio, a prayer after that, oratatio, and then a receiving, a contemplation, right? As we move forward, even in the uh, great monastery uh, in uh, Sinai, we have a picture here, a beautiful picture of the monk's ladder, uh, probably. Uh, moving up here. And so the devils are pulling people off the ladder. It means you don't, you're not just because you're on the ladder, you're going to heaven, right? This, this is a, a personal thing. People are going up. You have to climb a ladder. These visuals, as they say, the stained glass windows were the Bible of the, of the believers in the Middle Ages. Well, so are these pictures uh, as they begin to emerge uh, in this sense. Um, the real revival, I think, in the low countries now, Uh, where we're going to now uh, uh, zero in, uh, is the revival of an Augustinian order. As you know, uh, the Benedictine order was the first great monastery that's a group. uh, After St. Benedict, he has the rule, the Benedictine rule. Throughout the Middle Ages, there's many, many different orders, right? So although there's division within Protestantism and Catholics think, oh, it's just Catholic Church, No, there's a lot of different orders, right? And you know today the Jesuits uh, try to be very uh, specific, right? Fordham is not the Catholic University of New York. It's the Jesuit University of New York, right? You get uh, get a branding, so forth. Well, you know the difference between Dominicans, order of preachers, and Franciscans, and so forth. So a lot of different orders. In particular, though, the Augustinian order, uh, which is Villanova today, uh, at least uh, supported by that, uh, became very, very important. It's a revival of some of the things that we saw in Augustine. Uh, victoria veritas et caritas, right? You, you know, caritas is heart, right? So uh, that nothing conquers except truth and victory and love. So that's one of the characteristics of the Augustinian. Secondly, I love this one the best. Qui uh, cantat bis oratat, right? To sing... Uh, it often says once is to pray twice, right? So the importance of singing now. um, Psalms were very important for the French. You would go to battle singing uh, psalms, right? And for the French Huguenots, especially, psalm singing. In many of even the Dutch, very orthodox Dutch reformed churches, the only songs that you sing are the psalms. And the organ goes, and then you proceed to sing, and I've been through a lot of those as well. So psalm singing uh, is very important. But really what's important here is the connection between the religious and the lay believers uh, in the world. We're going to show that. Um, Calvin and the Brethren, so just to uh, sort of, I felt like I needed to front-end load this to... uh, have everybody hang in there with me, only talking about the Renaissance and not yet talking about the Reformation until next week, right? But you have to, you have to anticipate it and long for it, right? Um, there's a connection now between the Augustinian orders and a new group arising called the Brethren of the Common Life, or it's in Dutch, Bruders van het Gemeene Leve. So um, I've st- I did a master's thesis on this, so okay, I'm going to try to get through this without too many details, okay, uh, under uh, Mark Knoll. So uh, he encouraged me to do this, actually. Um, ordinary believers join a community uh, with monks, but the ordinary believers don't take vows, and they devote themselves to spiritual disciplines. Impossible in most of the Middle Ages, Right. Primary education among the brethren becomes very important, as well as publishing devotional materials. So it's really starting here. Uh, here, John Calvin studied in a Brethren and Common Life school as a youth. Uh, so did Luther and Erasmus. Uh, uh, Calvin's mature views on justification and on predestination were mediated to him through Busser, who in turn had gained insights on those matters from the northern reformers, Brethren of the Common Life such as Hansa Fort, uh, who I did my master's thesis on, and Rhoda. So we're going to go forward on this. I, sometimes I give you little uh, – I, I try to give as many websites so that you don't have to find a book. If you want to go to a website, you can go to that. Um, most of my books are in Dutch or Latin, so uh, we're, uh, I can share them with you. But um, So now this guy is really not very well-known at all, but I'm looking for people – who are picking up the baton and carrying it. Did he, did he arrive at a place that we want to stop? No, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're saying the Heidelberg, uh, we're reading Calvin's Institutes, but very, very important person who gives the baton on. Uh, Jan Reisbroek, uh, 1317 already in Brussels, life of supreme, uh, uh, extreme austerity and mysticism, um, searches for pathways to God. Opens up a hermitage, Grunendal, uh, in modern-day Belgium. Uh, and he's a prior. He writes a lot of books. Uh, in Flanders, um, his thought is beginning to capture St. Paul and, and St. Augustine. Uh, he says this, right? We struggle with this. The whatness of God, right? So coming out of the Middle Ages, God, Jesus is in heaven. There's a huge gap between earth and heaven, Uh, somehow filled but not really by the mediating presence of Christendom, right? Not knowing what to do. This guy's trying to understand it within orthodoxy, but he's saying the whatness of God. How do I know who you are, God? He says we can never know, but need not discourage from exploring, describing rich regions, approximate truth, and life-giving experience. So he's on the journey. Um, His Idea is a balanced career, action yet contemplation. Uh, he loved nature, and I, uh, many of you can uh, certainly appreciate this. Alone in the woods, right? So he wasn't in a cathedral. He wasn't in a monastery. He didn't. He wasn't in a place that was reserved to be holy, right? God was everywhere. Alone in nature, the inspiration of God, sitting under a favorite tree, would write as Holy Spirit dictated. Often experience ecstatic absorption in God. But service to others became very important. Menial tasks and patient advice exposed the pious pretensions. One time, two uh, young priests came from Paris and, you know, what can we do? You know, sort of like, oh, great one, you know. And he said to them, you know, in this case, it's very simple. You're as holy as you wish to be, right? So it's a personal journey. Um, He wrote this uh, many things, the book of the 12 falaf uh, behine. those who follow the way of love are the richest of all men, living they are bold, frank, and fearless. they have neither travail nor care for the Holy Ghost bears all their burdens, they seek no outward seeming, they desire naught that is esteemed of men, they affect not singular conduct. they would be like other good men. So what we see starting to happen here is a balance between spiritual intuition that comes from that striving a disciplined intellect at the same time, uh, and, of course, uh, working out uh, the, 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 the work of faith and reason. Just a few more things on Ricebrook. Um, he talked about sort of three things. Uh, we just heard it, uh, Kevin today referred to the becoming part, right, uh, that it's being and becoming, coming from uh, St. Augustine. There's an active life, natural human existence of all. There's an interior life. Uh, illuminated by grace, more sanctified. But really what he's pushing here, right, you don't see so much in the Middle Ages, is what he calls this... Now we're trying to translate old Flemish words, right, in Latin. Uh, overvessen is a super essential or a God-seeing life, a union of power, reason, will. Um, he uses a particular word, hebraica, uh, and I know I, I don't want to... Uh, it's it's a difficult word to translate. It really means fruition, and he's getting it from what I had previously uh, talked about here, is that Aristotle has the supreme purpose in life. In Aristotle is eudaimonia, which is flourishing, but not a happiness, but at the end of a hard, disciplined life, uh, the fruit has come. So this fruition, this uh, Christian flourishing uh, is what he's really after here, and I think this is going to pick up later. Again, uh, conscience is something growing in the late Middle Ages. Uh, Augustine used Plato's unity of virtues, but argued that the love of God uh, in the City of God, we talked about last time, was so important. But they're, they're warning that virtues right, become vices unless developed by the love of God. Uh, so, thus, reason, knowledge, rhetoric by themselves are very empty. It's the heart, right? That's Calvin, uh, caritas. It's the heart that connects the mind and the conscience. God speaks to human consciences, right? So the individuals and personal. Um, again, in Bonaventure and others, uh, uh, conscience is a rational faculty. Uh, practical reason uh, connected to actions, will. Uh, the, the word synergist, uh, natural capacity, a practical reason to apprehend intuitively universal first principles of human action. So we're just, what I'm trying to say is we're building now this possibility of lay believers journeying toward God, uh, helpful in community, but also having a personal dimension that we didn't see in the Middle Ages. Um, In the low countries, we start to see these communities thrive. Um, If you think about the crises of the 14th century, uh, half the people in Europe are homeless, right? <laughs> One-third to one-half dying in uh, plague, uh, wars going on all the time. The Low Countries, in particular, uh, because of sailors and others, have uh, many, many women who uh, aren't on the protection of a family under a, a male. Uh, and so these baguinages in French develop, uh, and this is in Loven. Uh, these are student dorms right now, but uh, they use the old baguinage. Uh You can go there and look at them. And they, these are women who did not take vows. They supported themselves through weaving, uh, making lace, uh, other sorts of things, bread. Uh, but they were a very important community in which, of course, there's a spiritual discipline connected. Um, this is an old church in Amsterdam. Uh, I attended that for quite a while when I was a student there. It's now the Church of Scotland, but originally this was a Beguinage chapel in the middle of Amsterdam. Lay people attended this. Um, Walter Simmons and Cities of La- Ladies is a very good book on this. Uh, it's construed from texts that ordinary people were taught and presumed to understand like Potter, the Ave, the Penitential Psalms, They were more personal and intimate, and at the last wishes of those patrons suggest were regularly performed outside of formal liturgical context. So we see this building in the Low Countries and especially. Now, uh, what appears as a result of this activity are a number of handbooks, uh, like we have today, many books on uh, beyond the Bible of, of how to study the Bible, how to lead uh, in the spiritual discipline. So these are the first ones appearing. Uh, probably after the Bible, uh, if you go to Amazon.com <laughs> uh, and you could go to Amazon in every country, you'll find that the Imitation of Christ book by Thomas A. Kempis right now on Amazon, there's about 15 different publishers <laughs> in English, right? It's in every language. So apart from the Bible, Imitation of Christ is probably the longest-running devotional book, and it comes out of this particular thing, 1418 already. Erasmus writes a great book beyond his Praise of Folly, which is fun reading, right? Um, en Caridian Miletus Christiani, the Christian soldier, right? That you're out there in a fight. It's a very different thing than the Middle Ages, isn't it? Uh, a formal handbook. Uh, Ignatius Loyola, a founder of the Jesuits, has one later on, uh, spiritual exercises, and of course, um, John Calvin's Institute of Christian Religion have to wait till next week. Okay, I'm not gonna, you're not gonna get that this week. Um, so where where are these brethren of the Common Life the strongest? Well, in a city called Deventer, on uh, on the Isle River in the Low Countries, um, the big church here, Saint Lebrunus. Uh, is where they begin to uh, uh, collect uh, the founder of this particular community, which is a very strong community, uh, Gerrit, uh, I suppose you say uh, it's Gerrit Groot, right, in Dutch, so Gerrit Groot, I suppose. Um, he's a deacon. He's the founder of this, um, uh, this area. Uh, his spiritual father is Roosbroek Unfortunately, uh, uh, Groot uh, dies in the plague. Many others do. And so, if he had lived longer, uh, perhaps we would have even more from him, but uh, God had his purposes. Um, so, what is the, this devotio moderna about here? Um, there's really four main themes. Um, first of all, and this is to us, it's sort of an obvious, but to a thousand years of the Middle Ages, it's not, right? A focus on the Bible, right? So, it's huge. Uh, secondly, an internalizing morality, right People aren't telling you what you have to believe. they're uh, giving you the Bible, they're telling you a few things, but you're working with your conscience, you're working it out yourself by replacing the vices in your life with virtues. Thirdly, as we saw from a brief look at even pictures and paintings, the idea that one could actually imitate Christ, right? He's not, sitting at the right hand of the father, judging he's the suffering servant eating with uh, with uh, publicans and sinners, right? So this is very important that that allows it. And then fourthly, a return to the model of the early church, which is Augustine, right? And you can see the uh, later on the protesting, uh, fighting for these kinds of principles as Luther and Calvin did uh, as we move forward. Uh, once again, try to give you as many um, uh, further websites to look at. That's actually uh, Chuck Colson, right, who is uh, sort of reformed, but certainly has taken on the Christian worldview uh, idea that uh, reformed certainly have. All right, so uh, several things that the Devotio Roderna and Brethren of Common Life are doing. Um, Dave Enter then, I showed you a picture of that, in 1500 had something like 2,000 students. Now, primary education does not really happen In Europe, until almost after the French Revolution. It's really Jean Jacques Rousseau and Emile and other things, right, that encourages people to go into nature, right? That's why field trips and recess are so important, right? Primary education is not there. But in the Low Countries, at least for some, uh, they're taking the brightest and best and they're having that. Uh, uh, Secondly, they devote themselves to publishing devotional materials for others. Uh, Thomas Akempis goes there, Wessel Hansefort, Luther Calvin, uh, and others are all part of these schools. Um, now, directly as well, John Calvin, um, his teacher in Paris, uh, if you know this name, uh, Jacques Lefebvre uh, deeply influenced by the Brethren, uh, Guillaume Farrell, who's friends uh, and co-worker, colleague with, uh, with Calvin... Uh, is another student there. Uh, When Calvin left Paris, right? he doesn't go right to Geneva. He first goes to Paris. He's fleeing to Paris. We'll talk about that next week. He stays in Strasbourg for a while and then goes on to Geneva. He's in Geneva a little while. He actually gets kicked out. They don't want the kind of reform that Calvin has. He goes back to different places. So Strasbourg after Geneva and Paris is very important. Johann Sturm, who uh, is there, has revised the curriculum uh, based on his experience (coughs) having studied with the brethren in Liège. Uh, And this new curriculum studies the Greek language, right? It's not enough to look at the Latin and not understand it. Uh, Go back to Greek, study theology, right, Uh, was new progression to higher levels of performance, this whole idea. Later on, Calvin clearly uses this new curriculum in the Academy of Geneva, which is going to uh, educate people like John Knox and all the way through for the Reformation. So very, very important. Um, Irina Bacchus, who uh, is a colleague of mine, we've written stuff together. She's in the University of Geneva. Uh, Here's something online you can look uh, for there. Uh, Martin Busser, again, uh, says, uh, in meantime, there came to me a pious man named John Rodius. Uh, although he regarded Luther as his teacher, he nevertheless owes at times more to Hansefort. Uh, I am amazed that we make so little of Hansefort, and we still make too little of Hansefort. Uh, he, with the Bible in his hands, discussed consubstantiation, right? Catholicism, transubstantiation, the body and blood turn into the physical, right? Consubstantiation is the Lutheran idea that uh, there's something almost physical going on, quite, right? Real presence, which is reformed, uh, is a spiritual presence, and then memorial is a fourth way, right? So consubstantiation in this case. Uh, With me at the great length, I defended Luther because that's what he had heard before uh, with all the force of my command, but soon noticed I could no longer meet the, his arguments if one adheres to the Bible as the final authority. So you can see this is growing here. So I had to replenish, uh, relinquish my own view of Christ's physical presence, although I was still in doubt as the meaning of the words, this is my body. Karlstadt, of course, which is the second close to Luther, uh, for more than one reason could not satisfy me. Uh, Albert Heim is a great old book on the Brethren of the Common Life, Devotio Moderna, as well. So who's Hansefort? I only have one slide on him. Aren't you proud of me? Uh, it's you know, uh, a 120-page thesis down to one. Uh, born in Groningen, uh, uh, educated in Zwolle, another city. Uh, he's uh, in Cologne, where a lot of people are studying, uh, learns Greek, uh, comes back, uh, studies in Paris, uh, ends up in Basel, teaches in Heidelberg. So again, the Heidelberg Catechism, all of this uh, is uh, uh, coming and then eventually ends up back in the low countries um, very much uh, writing about uh, 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 the need for protest and reform. Thomas Akempis, actually a lot of these names in the Renaissance, you, you put your real name to the side and you, you sort of got a Latinized name, right? So there's a lot of even Erasmus, right? Uh, and in this case, it's Thomas A Compass, right? He's from Kempus, but his real name is Thomas Hammerkan, which means little hammer. You can almost see it there. Um, and he's the one who writes The Imitation of Christ. Uh, originally written for uh, novices in Latin, eventually it's translated into languages and it becomes a key book for um, uh, people uh, who are desiring uh, the spiritual disciplines. Again, uh, the modern devotion, um, it's mystical yet very practical. So you can almost see Rysbrook all the way through uh, to the Brethren of Common Life, this uh, same thing. Uh, We know that he's a a Renaissance scholar because he follows the advice of Seneca to not read too many books. So in both Latin and Old Flemish, in omnibus requiem fi et nunsquum inventi nisi, and then he 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 translates into ein hooken met ein buken, and it sort of rhymes. It means a uh, uh, hooken are corners and books are buken, right? So so everywhere I've sought rest and found it nowhere, save in little nooks and with little books. And so the little part, though, is to say don 't think that education and knowledge comes from amassing as many books and as many ideas as you can concentrate right. You can go back to that Lexio Divina. the meditation on scripture is as important as reading all of it right and, and applying it and so forth. So I think in this whole situation, you see this here 's the old book, and there 's many, many different copies from Penguin to everybody else. Um, Making a, a a dollar now still or whatever a euro on it uh, as well. Um, his uh, tomb is at the very end. Uh, it's a beautiful tomb, I think, because it has all the Christian symbols. So I put this on here almost as a uh, not a conclusion but a a summary of everything we've done so far. Right? You have the uh, Alpha and the Omega in the middle, a beginning and the end. You have the Cairo, which Constantine put on his. Uh, his armor and convert it right uh, the the sign for Christus or Christos uh, around it you have a whole list uh, you have the medieval four gospels and remember in the gospels, each of the gospel writers was not a person but a particular John was the eagle right and you know so and Matthew was the ox and so forth. so you see that around there, and with the sort of Celtic cross and I've translated here here lived. Thomas from Kempen, in the service of the Lord, and wrote The Imitation of Christ. Now, at the very end, in fact, I'm going to um, end on time because I've only got a few slides left. I'm <laughs> really learning. You guys are really helping me here. Um, the, the This low Countries piety is now really shown on the street. Uh, and in several cities, in this particular city, um, they wanted to incorporate this on their on their houses and it became very common in low countries that on every house you'd have a plaque somewhere, right? And on the plaque, there would be some kind of saying that would say, you know, forget the tomb, right? You know, it's nice to have an epitaph on your tomb, but while living, here is my idea, right? So look at some of these beautiful buildings here. So here's the buildings, we're gonna do a close up now of some of the things up on the building Showing this, Uh, houses with the seven works of mercy in uh, Ghent, or Ghent, uh, which is modern-day Belgium. In fact, at a moment, they called themselves the the Calvinist Republic of Ghent. Right today in Belgium, it's no longer Calvinist. They went north again, but Ghent was a very the city early on was uh, very heavily influenced by the Reformed. So we can see this: feed the hungry, Um, visit the prisoners. Um, Feed the hungry again. Um, Clothe the naked. Uh, Hospitality to the foreigner. Uh, Care for the sick. Uh, All the way through, right? So you see those uh, as a very important thing. Now, the last little part of this, just a few more slides, and if we don't get to all of them, it's okay. Uh, What I've been doing... Uh, I figured out over time. These are going online so you can look at the PowerPoints. And I've started to add just a few more to kind of make it sense because they're sort of like footnotes, right? So, uh, But I've just added a couple more here. Uh, back to my favorite thing of paintings as well as text, right? If it tells a thousand words. I love this one Hieronymus Bosch. And here's uh, the ship of fools, right? That whole idea that we're all in the same, same ship. And uh, the using satire, like Erasmus does in Praise of Folly, to point to people and say, uh, you're responsible, right? You're, you're not in a ship. You don't want to be in a ship where, in fact, everybody is partying and nobody knows uh, where we're going. Again, Erasmus, we'll just leave you with him today. Uh, we're running out of time. But you know, in his book, In Praise of Folly, which I love this idea of Morias Aconium*, which is the idea of that. So Thomas More was his friend, but the roots of Morias could also be moron, right? And I tell my freshman, next year, you get to be sophomores, right? Wise fools, right? Because you think, you, after your freshman year, you think you know everything, and then by your junior year, you're in your major, and you realize you don't know anything, and then you finally graduate, right? So, and get into grad school and realize you don't know anything, right? So, but I love, uh, I love his play on words and the use satire in this case. So, His whole book is to try to avoid hubris, develop your conscience, and of course, uh, seek to know scriptures. And there's no one who did more translation of Greek and Latin into uh, uh, biblical languages of the day than probably uh, Erasmus. So we're cutting off. Yeah. Yeah, please. Awesome.